too much advertising is available to buy and it's being bought by machines and most advertisers don't realize how much advertising they're buying. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. Over the past year, we at the Media Leader have been championing three key issues facing the media industry. Declining trust in media, both from the perspective of consumers and from within different actors in the media supply chain, sustainability, and how the media industry is reckoning both with how to decarbonize itself as well as with the ethics of working with certain clients, and the talent crisis and how the ad industry can recruit and retain high-quality workers and especially work to create equitable spaces and opportunities for women and diverse members of their workforce. Those issues have been touched on in three of the most recent episodes of this podcast and in countless articles throughout the year. But we didn't just come up with the idea to champion in those topics ourselves, we listened to you. At last October's Future of Media conference, we held a debate on what we should champion, and those were the topics chosen by the audience. And in just a few days at the Future of Media this year, we'll be holding a debate again to see what issue we will champion throughout 2024. To preview the debate and also the rest of the star-studded conference, I'm joined today by Nick Manning. He is the Manning and Manning Gottlieb OMD, an agency founder, ex-agency CEO, and media leader columnist. Nick, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. And also back with us on the podcast is our editor, Omar Oaks. I'm glad to have you back on here, Omar, especially as you will be plenty busy at Future Media yourself. Uh, yes, I will. Hi, Jack. Hi, Nick. Hi. So trust has been a particularly salient issue for both of you in your various op-eds recently. Omar, you've written a lot about fake advertising, including fake out-of-home ads, especially the controversy surrounding uh, Jimbox and how AI is also making it easier to create fake ads. It sparked a lot of debate in the industry. I'm curious, in your opinion, uh, to what extent do fake advertisements undermine trust in media? It's just another piece of the long-standing story of trust declining in not just advertising but media more generally i mean it's it's like anything where a tool is a tool just like a hammer is a tool a hammer can help build a house it can also be a violent weapon you know deep fake technology you know it, it all depends on how it's deployed and this is nothing new by the way but what's actually more sinister and we've written about it a lot on the media leader this year where whether it's advertisers or whether it's media companies, when you're when you're purporting to do something that you're you're not actually doing, that's when it becomes an issue. And particularly when this coincides with a political climate in which the value of trust seems to decline as much as the opportunity to score quick wins in a very kind of quick digital media environment where, you know, you hear thing expressions like the dead cat strategy, for example, where, you know, just saying something outrageous and getting clicks and getting an outrage um, vibe going is the goal, as opposed to actually creating any argument, as opposed to actually creating any long-term relationship with a customer, if you're an advertiser. Um, I, th I think that's the more worrying trend is that the disincentives seem to be disappearing. Mm. On a somewhat related topic, just on the broader issue of trust, Nick, uh, there's been a lot of rumors and news swirling around the, the Telegraph sale that's supposed to come up uh, any day now, really. Uh, what are your thoughts about who could purchase the paper and what that would mean for, for trust and news in the UK? Well, I think we have to be very careful. Omar's already referred to this. But I think the, the, the problem is that is the polarization that we now have within the media industry 
from a political angle is is greater than it's ever been before. And part of it is caused by the fact that um, the media owners rely on sensational content or content that's going to, to, to generate a response. And that response can be page traffic, it can be comments below the line. They have to try and build traffic that they can monetize. And that leads to more extreme content, more hysteria, more sensationalism. Um, and certainly the Telegraph has been uh, ploughing that furrow quite significantly for quite some time now. And although Private Eye is, is not always the most reliable sources for everything, uh, they described the Telegraph the other day as increasingly deranged. Mm. Uh, and it is. And I wrote a piece for the media leader a, little, a short while ago uh, about the Telegraph in particular. And I, I actually said that people should read the Daily Telegraph because it acts as a useful, useful corrective for the world that we tend to live in, which is the liberal, metropolitan, you know, woke world, in inverted commas. Uh, and the Telegraph is, is the polar opposite of that. And it's very important for all of us to understand that there are different views out there. There are people who think very differently. Uh, I go into the Daily Telegraph comments section all the time just to try and understand the other side of that equation. Um, and it's extreme. It really is extreme. And, and that extremism has been on full display in Manchester over the last few days, is that you know, the, the political world is becoming increasingly polarised and that is and and that is being reflected through the media, unsurprisingly. Uh, and GB News is 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 another good example of that. What I hope, uh, and it's more of a hope than an expectation, is that whoever wins the auction for the Telegraph titles and the Spectator returns it to a much more level-headed, sensible, well-run organisation compared to what it is today. Uh, I'd say that's more of a hope and expectation because we we live in very polarised times. What's the economic incentive for the Telegraph to do that when every indication has been uh, over the last 15, 20 years almost that the more hysterical you are, the more outrage-inducing you are, that's how you win in the digital attention economy? Well, I don't know if Jack's going to answer that question, but uh, <laughs> I mean, that is the problem, isn't it, in a nutshell, is that uh, the money lies in outrage, uh, what, you know, what we call angertainment. Uh, I will talk about this a bit more, maybe, but it's it, it's one of the reasons why advertisers are uh, avoiding channels which which build their audience in that way because they don't want to be associated with angertainment. But uh, mm -hmm. that's possibly an adjacent subject, but it, it's true. Um, and, and the trouble is that sensationalism uh, builds audiences and audiences build revenue. And part of this, uh, unfortunately, is also because some of these titles that we're talking about are short, shorter revenue compared to where they'd like to be because so much of the advertising revenue is soaked up by the, the, by the big platforms. And, of course, it's also part of the new mixed economy of uh, advertising and, and subscription and other forms, which we're going to be talking about at the Future of Media next week, which I think is possibly one of the biggest themes of all in media right now, which is the way that the media are now being funded not just by the traditional sources of advertising, but by other forms of revenue, whether that be subs, whether that be e-commerce revenues, affiliate revenues, that sort of thing. Um, but they're all having to do this. And they're all having to build their audiences in the most, um, uh, well, in the most monetizable, to use a horrible word, monetizable way possible in order to, uh, to, to build their revenues, given that advertising 
is being sucked out of the system by the big platforms, but also we live in a time when advertising revenue is in short supply anyway. Mm, yeah, I would just add there was a, a recent Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism study that found two thirds of Brits uh, would say that said that nothing would get them to pay for news. I mean, nothing at all. It doesn't matter mm. what the price is. They just wouldn't, they, they feel uh, entitled to, to news for free. And so I think that speaks a little bit to that that change that, that you're just describing in news organizations feeling they might need to sensationalize a little bit more or polarize themselves a little bit more because the people that are willing to pay, that are more easily monetizable, uh, are probably on the edges a bit more. So well, it, yeah, yeah. If you, absolutely. And if you look at the, the the recent revenues for the Telegraph Group, um, they're really quite they're pretty good, uh, but they're not good because of the cover price of the Daily Telegraph, of course, uh, as it used to be the case. People when people bought newspapers, they're not good because of the advertising revenues coming in uh, via the usual routes. They're good because they are get they are building their subscriptions uh, in the same way that uh, the Times has built its subscriptions and others have done the same thing. Perhaps we can talk about Netflix and and Amazon in reverse of that shortly. But uh, I mean, the way to build revenue in 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 the publishing industry is subscriptions these days. And people, are, you know, it may be the minority, but the ones who subscribe are subscribing because they want to belong to that tribe. They want to be able to go on and, and post their comments. They want to read editorial that appeals to them they don't want to hear contrary views and you know if you go into the into the uh, comment section of the daily telegraph as i do for the reasons i've already stated if somebody uh, ex- exercises a, you know, expresses an or a contrary view to the orthodox they say go back to the guardian Get get the gone to the. It's kind of like you shouldn't be on here. You should be on the Guardian website, not on here. They don't want to hear other people who don't agree with them. It's it's you know they 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 gain validation and self worth and 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 they, they and they feel like they're in the majority. You know comments like millions of people feel the way I do about this. Millions of people, uh, you know, think this and they you know which is almost always untrue, but it makes them feel better. Uh, they, they feel as they're not alone. It gives them a chance to vent their spleen. And it drives subscriptions. Mm. Mm. And it may not be the majority, but it's enough to make some very, very good revenue. You, you mentioned that there's a number of transitioning uh, industries. So publishing is one of them. You mentioned TV and streaming, and I'll, I'll ask about that in a bit. But uh, you know that sort of speaks to the, the key theme of, of the future of media event. Uh, yeah. which is the road to, to media 3.0, which is this idea that media is moving into this more interactive space. Uh, you know, first party data is used uh, where, where privacy is, is expected to be more uh, uh, respected. Media experiences are then also going to be more personalized, as you sort of mentioned. Uh, uh, and that's all driven by technological advancement and, and as well an overweighted investment in digital media and advertising. Nick, you, you also have spent quite a few uh, of your columns writing about, uh, quote, the seemingly unstoppable internet juggernaut that is at a crossroads, unquote. Uh, you declared in your May column that the online advertising bubble has burst, and in your June column that the open web programmatic market is as impenetrable as ever. That was following an ANA study that found made for advertising sites were home to a an outrageously large amount of, of digital ad spend. I'm curious, we're seemingly inevitably moving toward this increasingly digital future. What needs to change to make it a to, to make advertisers more confident about the future? 
Well, uh, I think that <laughs> this is a subject that uh, it, well, no doubt will, will be talked about a lot at the um, uh, conference next week. But I, I think what's most important is that, um, you know, th there's no question that the digital world is the world. Uh, nobody's, nobody's trying to deny any of that. And there's no question that programmatic trading is the way that advertisers will use the platforms. That's already a fact of life. I mean, you know, the, uh, the big platforms already take the majority of revenue and programmatic is, is, is already the majority of the way that it's traded. So I think there's, there's, there's no one's trying to turn the, cl the clock back here. Absolutely not. What the problem, though, is that the way that the media is traded is incredibly untransparent. And um, there have been six studies this year uh, already about this, which which actually demonstrate and describe very clearly just how untransparent the market is. There was the big ANA study. In fact, only the first half of that study has been published so far. The second half comes in October. Actually, we are in October, <laughs> uh, but will be published um, uh, or be announced uh, at the Masters of Marketing conference that the ANA are handling uh, later on in the months. I've already I already know a bit about that, what's likely to come out of that, but um, you know the some of the findings really are quite extraordinary. And it demonstrates again and again and again that advertisers simply don't don't know where their advertising is going, uh, what they're getting for their money, and what the result of that advertising is. It's it's even less transparent now than it ever was before. And I've been working on this subject now for over a decade. It's got worse and worse and worse. And this has to be reversed. It, this cannot continue because the advertisers are losing out. They're losing billions of dollars of value through a system which is both inefficient, ineffective, and too opaque. So you know this this cannot be this cannot go on forever uh, because it's wasting too much money, and it is contributing to the loss of public trust in advertising. Um, there's a slight conundrum here because everybody thinks that the loss of trust is about the content of the advertising, but all of the research from the Advertising Association uh, over many years now shows that people lose trust in advertising because they are bombarded by it. Mm. Uh, and to the extent that they feel beaten beaten up by it uh, and therefore no longer believe it, which is you know, there's a slight disconnect there in my head, but actually it's true. Mm. It is bombardment that leads to a loss of trust in advertising, and the bombardment is getting worse. And so, so it's a frequency issue, and that's brought on in part by the fact that digital ads are everywhere. Well, it's, it is a frequency issue, um, and it's brought on by the fact that the media platforms, especially the, the the ones who aren't getting the benefit of all the revenue, are having to bombard their audiences to gain a sliver of revenue. And made for advertising websites were a slight subset of that. But uh, if you look at some of the websites that are out there now, you know, particularly the Reach titles, uh, the Independent, they're just wall to wall uh, ads. It makes the user experience extraordinarily bad. But they, ha but they have. They almost have no choice. So the bombardment issue isn't so much an issue that, ad that advertisers want to bombard their audiences. They don't. The bombardment issue comes from the other end. It comes from the sales side. Is that mm. too much advertising is, is 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 available to buy, and it's being bought by machines. And most most advertisers don't realise how much advertising they're buying. Believe it or not. And so. If you look at the studies, so the ANA study this year found that uh, the average campaign appeared on 44,000 websites. The ISBAR PwC study, for the last couple of them, showed that it was 42,000 websites, so incredibly closely linked numbers. It's ridiculous. 
Um, and no no campaign needs to appear on 42,000. Well, it's just that the machines are out of control. The campaign setup is not being done correctly, and nobody is monitoring it. Mm. And, and the media agencies are not in control of the machines that they operate. Mm. There's, uh, I think, something that we've struggled with when talking about such a broad issue such as trust this year is that there's trust from both a consumer standpoint that you mentioned, but then also, as you mentioned, trust from within the industry itself yeah. and, and trust in advertising. Omar, I'm, I'm curious, you know, in your mind, what do you think needs to be done to regain that trust? I mean, it's one thing to identify an issue of trust in multiple different areas, but there's it's another thing to start talking about, you know, what are the pragmatic solutions that that we should be looking at as an industry? I mean, Nick was right before when he talked about media owners um, increasingly adopting subscription models, not just, you know, because it's a, it's a more stable form of revenue potentially going forward, but they it enables them to understand their customers a lot better. The more data that they have about them, the argument follows that they will, you know, refine products and services to to deliver what they want. And the subscription should be a function of that. But there's no getting around it that as long as we've had commercial media, the advertising has been a huge and important part of that. And I referenced my column this week, you know, the book Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. You know, it's worth reading because it reminds you of how how new this industry still is. Less than 200 years when in the 1830s in America, they had the first penny newspapers where someone realized that actually the customers aren't um, the people that we're selling to. It's the advertisers. The customers are merely the products. We're selling the customers. We're selling their attention. And nothing's really changed since then. The attention economy is such that nothing is going to change. There aren't, as I said before, the incentives don't really change. What advertisers want to get product messaging in front of as many people as possible. Media owners want ad revenue. They're incentivized to maximize um, attention as much as possible. And the quality of that attention, well, that's a subjective thing for, <laughs> I suspect, Guardian readers as opposed to Telegraph readers, bringing it back to that conversation. Um, it's it's up to the advertisers who are paying for this. It is frankly unacceptable, you know, if Nick, you know, through his work with Ubiquity and the consulting work that he's doing has, has, has seen that advertisers still don't know enough about how their money is being spent, messaging going out on tens of thousands of websites, including all this MFA trash, then they are negligent. And it's fine when it's not your personal money at stake. Um, but this is a huge economic market failure where money is being spent by people who don't know how much money is being spent and where it's going. And it has potentially disastrous consequences in terms of funding organized crime. Um, when we look at ad fraud, which which not mentioned so far, but is still a huge but yet unspoken topic in this industry as well. We want to talk about trust in media. These are all symptoms of the same problem where there is a huge disconnect between how transparent um, trading should be and the kind of industry that people claim that they want to have. So until there is more transparency in terms of how um, in terms of how much advertisers are demanding, then I don't think you're going to see much change. I, I think that's all true. Unfortunately, we have a bit of a trust sandwich going on here. Uh, the consumer trust uh, issue is is out there, uh, and the AA stats show that that is uh, continuing to, well, certainly not improve. 
Um, and so there's that level of trust, which is consumer, consumer trust in media. And then you've got the the issue of trust within the the uh, trading ecosystem. And the, the ultimate problem for the advertisers is that uh, they are up against. They are basically having to manage three distinct oligopolies uh, on the other side of the equation. You've got the media agency oligopoly, the uh, publisher oligopoly, particularly the large platforms, not so much the the old, you know, publishers. And then you've got the ad tech oligopoly, which is dominated by Google and the trade desk, mostly by those two. So uh, the advertiser is very disadvantaged in this equation. They, they are effectively having to deal with three large groups of people who have got very aligned commercial interests. So the sales side uh, now predominates over the buy side. It's a supply side led market. Um, and as a result, um, the advertisers uh, struggle with that. Um, and it, this creates an atmosphere of a lack of trust. And, you know, from an internal perspective, you know, when we, when I'm working with a business now that it specialises in trying to establish trust within a contractual framework, um, there are still many, many areas where uh, media agencies simply don't uh, adhere to the contracts they've got with the, with the clients. So, it, you know, and, and this is the, the problem that we have. We've got to address the issue of trust both from the consumer perspective, and that's got to improve, and we've got to improve the, the, the trust factor within, the, within the, the marketing ecosystem itself. And both of those need to be addressed as separate issues, but they are, of course, related to each other because where, where the Venn diagram arises is that, is that the, the way that the media are constructed now feeds consumer lack of uh, trust, but also it, it contributes to the problems of lack of trust within cl among clients as well. So we've got an ecosystem uh, that needs to be sort of almost taken apart and reassembled that, to, to address both of those two things. And, you know, it, although it's been led by digitization, um, it doesn't mean to say that digitization in, in and of itself is un creates this. It's the way that it's been done. Mm. And it's also the way that it, it's been dominated by uh, by the oligopolies and the, and particularly the oligopoly of the big uh, digital platforms. So these are really complex areas, and uh, but they are the ones that everybody needs to be focused on. And I'm, I'm hoping that the conference next week will will start to shine some light into that, and we can start to look at some solutions because we've got a pretty good idea of what the problems are. Mm, mm. And I'm sure everyone's going to have their eye on you know, whether or not Google search. Can get broken up because yeah. talk about taking apart an oligopoly. That, that there, there's there's one big one right there. Um, I, we've talked a lot about trust already. I want to be you know conscious of the fact that sustainability and talent have also been huge issues mm. this year. But I'm also curious, you know, Omar, in your view as editor, we've we've written about these issues and we published on these issues a lot this year. Have they become any more or less relevant? Would you say that anything any substantial progress has been made on sustainability and on on talent this year that that you've seen as editor um and if not you know what what's would be holding the industry back on these issues yeah we solved it <laughs> i'm not saying solved it but, but uh, progress right yeah so um we're all equitable in terms of talent and we're all net zero <laughs> so it's fine no i mean um it's been a year since the last conference and a year is, you know, a, a short time um, for when we're trying to talk about big changes um, in this industry. Now, trust, talent and sustainability were the three big um, topics that the audience at the Future of Media last year wanted the media leader to champion this year. 
and we held a series of debates. Um, I ran a debate with a private session of the UK media industry and advertising industry's um, most senior leaders. And we also held a debate among rising stars, future leaders among the conference. And then we we took those different perspectives on what the media leaders should champion, what the biggest issues for 2023. And Nick, Jan Gooding, um, Mick Buckley debated those. And we, along, alongside the audience of the future of media, we came down to these final three. And... I suspect if we did a similar sort of exercise next week, and I'll get into what we'll do next week, you wouldn't be far off trust, talent and sustainability again. So that gives you an idea of how big and intractable to an extent these issues are Mm. and how important they are. And I suspect if we had them 10 years ago, maybe they would be quite similar as well. Maybe not so much sustainability. Trust is an ongoing issue in a communications industry where everyone has an idea about what trust is and should be, whether it's you know, we've we talked about newspapers, whether we were talking about the behavior of tabloids, whether we were talking about big tech, um, but also a lot of these other issues such as ad tech, wasted spends, um, mm. monopolies and oligopolies, advertisers being ripped off. Um, there's a lot of blame to go around, frankly, if you want to look for it. I think what I'd be keen to 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 look at next week when we hold these debates, we'll be having a similar sort of exercise, but ultimately we'll be looking for the one big thing in 2024 that the media leader should champion Um, because as you said Jack we've written a lot about um, talent we launched a career leader supplement that goes out every Tuesday on our on our newsletter series Um, sustainability kicking off with um, the series we did with the Guardian at the end of last year focusing on how we go towards net zero and all the pieces which have come out of that this year and we've also done a lot on sustainability look at the media leader podcast um, I think our last episode was focused on this issue with Scope 3 with mm. Anna Mirza. And of course, trust is something which Nick, other columnists like Jan, Ray Snoddy, myself regularly have talked about. These issues aren't going the way. I'd be keen to know when push comes to shove, what's the one big thing next week that leaders and rising stars in our, in our industry really think we should focus on? Yeah, we'll see. Nick, do you have any uh, initial thoughts before you hear any of either side of the debate? Uh, I sure do. (laughs) (laughs) And it it doesn't get mentioned quite so much. It was on, I think it was on the long list uh, last year, but didn't make the the cut as it were. And um, I keep coming back to uh, effectiveness, and I'm talking specifically about advertising here, and media effectiveness. In in the end, I believe from an advertiser's perspective, the, the solution lies in effectiveness because... If I really want to um, do the job properly and I want trust within all of my systems, then uh, you start from a position of effectiveness. And uh, what I mean by that is not just sort of, you know, the classic mixed media stuff that's been going on for years, although that certainly has a role to play, is that um, it's true to say that brands uh, these days are built in different ways. Advertising was always the major way that brands were built. It's still a major contributor, but there are many other ways to build brands these days. Um, and a lot of it is data-led. Um, you know, There's a lot of CRM involved in some customer data platforms, email marketing, social media, influencers, and so on. So you can build a brand in many different ways. 
It's not all. It's not all what we conventionally call advertising. It's brand communications. And if you're a client, advertiser, what you want to do is you want to know the best way to put together your brand communications across all of those platforms. For that, you need two things. You need incredibly good data, and you also need transparency. Because if you don't have transparency, the data doesn't tell you what it should. So if I'm trying to put together a you know an analysis of how my business works and what really works, but I, I get transparency from from part of that, but not others, then the data isn't going to tell the full story. So transparency isn't just about money; it's about how do we, we make marketing work at its best across all of the multiple platforms, not just advertising. So I have a long long held belief that the only solution to the lack of trust in the media ecosystem from a client point of view is in proper effectiveness measurement that requires absolute transparency. Um, and I'll 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 be say, I'll be talking about that next week to a certain extent, but I still I absolutely believe it's true, which is why I think it should be far further up the agenda. Uh, than it currently is. And everything else that we talk about, trust, sustainability, and talent, should, in some form or another, contribute to that. They are subsets of that. Uh, because, uh, let me just explain that a little bit. So, you know, why is sustainability important? Because in the end, if I want to be effective, I want to be effective in a way that is sustainable. I, I want to know what my emissions are across all my channels. So I can't get hold of that data. It's very hard to, to do that. Um, if there's lack of trust, I can't get the transparency that I need to do that. And if I haven't got the right people, uh, the right talent doing all of this, then frankly, uh, it's it's just not going to work. So all of those things contribute to that that building up of, of 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 effectiveness. And the other aspect of that, which is harder, is a is a harder argument to make, but I believe it's true, is that if I want to be truly effective. Uh, in my marketing communications, my brand communications, I want to advertise in places which genuinely work. Uh, they are effective, um, and they're effective because it's a great place to advertise. It's cost-effective to advertise. I get high attention levels, and the messaging uh, works its way through. The problem at the moment is that that isn't the case. There's, there's a lack of effective advertising. So if you take effectiveness pro- properly, A, you, you advertise better and you also get a better ecosystem behind all of it. So that's why I would, I would advocate for effectiveness being the root cause, uh, 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 the, sorry, the root driver of all of this and everything else is kind of a subset of it. Mm. Well, I, I know there's going to be a lot of conversation about effectiveness at, at mm. the at the future of media next week, uh, including a, a panel that I'll be sitting on as well. So Excellent. Um, I'm very interested to hear what comes up. Um, I'd like to transition us into a, a quick hit section uh, where let's try and keep answers as brief as possible. But uh, <laughs> oh, uh, I don't do brevity, Jack. So I'll do it. <laughs> You're not about that whole brevity thing. <laughs> Well, we'll have a, we'll have a go, and um, you know, you, you mentioned GB News earlier, and I did want to bring that up again. Uh, you know, between you know Dan Wooten and, and Lawrence Fox's uh, uh, yeah. suspension at GB News over some absolutely heinous comments, uh, the scandal-ridden broadcasters become even more involved in, yeah. in scandal. My question to you both is: uh, Will GB News still have its broadcasting license this time next year, Omar? That's a good question um, because the short answer is I don't know, but you don't want to hear that um, <laughs> because I, I think it's interesting because um, you remember there was, I've forgotten the presenter's name where there was, um, I think it was the first time that they they were found to, by Ofcom to be in breach and the story was that the CEO, Angelo Frangiopoulos, kind of reacted to that really 
badly and kind of sent around a mailer and this this must not happen again you know um the, the our ofcom license you know we have three ofcom licenses and it's very important to us but yet they keep you know i think they've now broken the broadcasting code three times and there are another seven or eight investigations in the offing um i don't know how ofcom has time to do anything else frankly um you you, you can't help wonder if they're actually goading ofcom into revoking their license um in order to drive them um onto the internet the strategy seems to be where gb news is very happy to drive engagement through social media rather than um, actually build up a big TV audience, which it frankly hasn't done um, in the time that it's been broadcasting. So I think it's a real test. And I think Ofcom, which is often pulled in these political directions, actually does have acute political judgment to make here. And I suspect that could be the reason why um, GB News still has a broadcasting license um, this time next year, because if it's purely on the on the basis of um, how many breaches they're going to have, um, well, it's going to be potentially quite a lot. So we'll see. Uh, yes, well, I think the short answer is uh, yes. I do think it will still have its its license next year because I think they will clean up their act sufficiently in order to do that. Uh, because they get a degree of respectability from being a broadcast channel uh, that you don't get if you're just a pure internet player. Um, and and they want to they want to make the political weather. That's what they want to do. That's the the, the, the reason it exists is to make the political weather. Uh, and from an ideological point of view, from a different perspective, it's a more right leading pers- perspective. Nothing there's nothing new in any of that. If you look at the funding behind it, that's what they're trying to do. And in order to make the political weather, you have to to, to bring influence to the political scene, particularly on the right. You have to have a television channel to do that because otherwise you're just another internet player. Uh, you get more freedom on the internet, but uh, you don't have the influence. Um, and and the, you know, so to influence the government, um, then that's what you do. And it's incredible the way that both Priti Patel and Liz Truss stood up at the Conservative Conference this week and said, fantastic work, to, uh, GB News. Carry on doing what you're doing. We love it, yada, yada, yada. So it's really worked. And, and not only has it worked in terms of that reaction, it's changed policy. A lot of the policies that are, are coming out of this week's Conservative Party conference have been influenced by GB News and The Telegraph. Surprise, surprise, which is why we should worry a bit about them being part of the same group, perhaps. Um, but it's working from a, from a purely, uh, from a political point of view, it's really working. And part of that is the legitimacy you get from being a television station, not just, a, if you like, an online player. Um, so I think they will want to keep their licence. I think it means they're going to have to do certain things to placate Ofcom. But what's really interesting is that um, when... Um, sorry, this, this isn't brevity, is it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's the opposite of brevity. I don't even know. Is there another word for, for a lack of brevity? Uh, anyway, whatever. Jack's, Jack's supposed to ring the gong by now. Okay, <laughs> I'll, all right, I'll well, start bringing a mini one. Yeah, OK. Well, I'll just leave you with one thing, which was uh, a tweet. Um, can we call it a tweet these days? An X from Nigel Farage, which trumpeted the fact that they'd just uh, beaten Sky News and Talk TV News in in audience share for the first time ever, a couple of Tuesdays ago. And they said, thank you, Britain. And it said, we are now the nation's favoured news channel, even though not supposed to be a news channel. They had a 1% share of viewing, 
which gave them that title, 1% of the viewing audience, not the population, but the viewing audience. These are not big numbers, but they have a big influence. But what was interesting about the, the second part of the tweet was, Ofcom, Ofcom will really start gunning for us now. What he's saying is essentially that uh, Ofcom is, is, is part of the elite, part of the establishment, and will deliberately set out now to, to try and suppress and silence GB News. That's what they want. They want people to think of them as being the alternative voice, that the, the blob, the establishment, the elite are trying to silence them and cancel them. So in some sense, they are, go they are absolutely right. They are goading uh, uh, that, that reaction. Um, so they're treading a tightrope. They've now got, and Ray Snoddy said something about this yesterday, which is very clever. Basically, they're treading a tightrope. They've got, on the one hand, they've got to keep their broadcasting license because it gives them legitimacy, but they also want the freedom to say whatever the hell they like, and they can do that on the internet. And they, they're treading that tightrope between the internet and broadcast television, regulated TV, unregulated. It's a very, very difficult area for them to, 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 to navigate. Uh, and, they, uh, and what we saw last week is it tipped over into Twitter territory. And the article that uh, will we'll go out next week, which is where I talk about this, basically sort of says uh, GB News is Twitter on TV. And the parallels are remarkable when you actually look at it. And they've got it's a tight, it's a very difficult tightrope to walk. But they they have to they have to retain the legitimacy of being a broadcast channel in order to be able to influence government policy. And at the moment, they are succeeding in doing that. Mm. As an American, I thought I had escaped the uh, that type of media ecosystem, but uh, it's it's come for me back here. I, I can't I can't escape that kind of well off uh, attempt. Of course, sorry, Ofcom is there to is to provide that balance, but there's no balance on GB News. It's it's, right. it's a fiction, and and that's why they've got twelve outstanding investigations against them. So you talked about streaming uh, earlier. Um, Amazon's bringing ads to Amazon Prime. Meanwhile, uh, Netflix's ads chief Jeremy Gorman uh, has actually just been replaced this week. Omar, I'm curious: uh, has streaming just become cable with more steps now that they all have <laughs> ads on their services? <laughs> um, no, I mean, we we touched on this before in terms of media owner trying media owners building subscription businesses, and obviously people have looked at the the massive success relative success that Netflix has had in doing that. But now it's come to the point where these companies, don't forget, have been built on a 10-year financial cycle in which interest rates have been very low. And they've been able to finance a lot of their growth through cheap borrowing. And they haven't been able to do that over the last 18 months, two years, when interest rates have interest rates have gone up for various reasons, they have to start making more money. And as we've said numerous times already in this conversation, advertising is a hugely important part of the media ecosystem to make money. And guess what? Netflix, it was a knee-jerk reaction to announce in a quarter, it was a very bad quarterly earnings um, last summer, in which off the back of that, they announced that they would start doing advertising. And guess what? They cobbled together a deal with Microsoft, and it hasn't gone very well. Mm. And Jeremy Gorman, who's you know um, just departed, she was at our Future of TV advertising conference last December to essentially tell the UK media industry, we don't really know what we're doing. Mm. We're just figuring it all out as we go along. Yeah, That is not what you want to hear. And it doesn't surprise me at all that um, the take-up has been um, sluggish. They've had to be more aggressive with their pricing strategy. 
And the ad experience for anyone who's used basic with adverts, it's underwhelming. And this is coming from Netflix, which is supposed to create excellence in content. If you want to compare it to cable television, who, you know, have very long established practices, whether it's in the the upfronts in the US, um, whether it's all sorts of syndicated licensing deals all over the world, um, whether it's through aggressive consolidation that's happened in that space, that cable, you know, traditional television has had to endure a lot of pain just to compete. And frankly, if Netflix, Disney Plus, um, Sorry, I shouldn't compare to Disney because they have a much more advanced advertising team. Um, But let's focus on Netflix. They are going to have to endure some pain and some really tough thinking about how they are going to build a credible advertising business because it's not just putting a load of ads on existing content. Nick, do you have any extra thoughts? Well, it's really, I I think it's really interesting. And Media 3.0 and the future of media is all about this change in business models because um, you know, we, we're moving from one world to another. Advertising was the dominant revenue stream for the, for the media channels. Subscriptions become very important for all the reasons we know about. And now you've got some uh, media which were advertiser-funded moving into subscriptions, and you've got some media uh, that, were f- that were funded by subscriptions moving into advertising. So we've got this kind of merging world with swirling business models um, and other forms of revenue, including e-commerce revenues and so on. Um, it's a maelstrom, and next week's conference is is largely about uh, what will what will emerge from that maelstrom. What will the media industry look like in five years' time when you've got a mixture of uh, funding models behind it? Um, some of which will be traditional, some of which will be new, uh, but they're mostly hybrids. And what's interesting is the effect of Netflix and Amazon and others moving you know, into uh, television in the way that they are with advertising uh, and other media having to go to subscription models in order to survive. So it's a, it's a, it really is a, uh, a melting pot right now. And that's what next week's conference is really all about, is how, you know, what should your business strategies be in order to cope with that melting pot and the way that the media is going to change over the next five years. It's probably the most fascinating period uh, that I've known in in all of the 40-plus years I've been in the industry. Mm. Final question. It's the 50th anniversary of commercial radio in the UK this (laughs) Sunday on the 8th of October. Um, Ella Sagar has been writing a number of interviews for us this week that are all fantastic, and you should should go uh, read them uh, if you're listening to this. But uh, my question for you is, do you listen to commercial radio, and what is your favorite station if you do? Uh, Omar, why don't you start? No, I'm afraid I don't. Sorry. Mm. Nick? No, I'm afraid I don't. Sorry. Ah, well. Uh, I listen to no commercial radio whatsoever, and I increasingly listen to uh, no radio whatsoever. Um, uh, for, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, but uh, radio is no longer, I mean, you know, partly due to my age, I guess, but it's not as relevant to me as it used to be where, uh, in, in, in former years. Mm. Uh, but incidentally, I mean, you know, we, we shouldn't talk about radio, shall we? we? We must talk about audio because one of the most interesting phenom- phenomena of recent times is the growth of podcasting. Um, and that is kind of, if that's the new radio, bring it on because it's, it is a, a fantastic form of communication. And one of the great things about it is it allows uh, for a far greater depth of content uh, than you get in some of the other media channels these days. And I'm very much in favour of that. 
Mm. I hope you're very much in favor of our very own podcast <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, funny that, isn't it? <laughs> well, we'll have to leave things there. But of course, the conversation is continuing in just a few days at our Future of Media event on the 11th and 12th of October. That's at 22 Bishopsgate in London. For more information, you can head to adwantedevents.com slash futureofmedia to register and view the agenda. We hope to see you there and be on the lookout for all the coverage from the event on The Media Leader. Nick, Omar, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Jack. Thank you for listening to The Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.